This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The United Nations has found massive evidence pointing to the Syrian government's involvement in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Former Bosnian Serb commander Ratko Mladic's final day in court nearly three decades after the war that killed more than 100,000 people and turned 4 million into refugees. They made the men stand and the women and children squat on the ground. Then they opened fire and killed the men. Then they took the women inside a house and set it on fire. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. We're going to discuss today how do we bring war criminals, people who commit crimes against humanity, to justice. Genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, torture. States can investigate, even though the crimes were committed not on their own territory. You have people still in power now who are prime suspects in some of those atrocities. We cannot underestimate the value of justice for victims of gross human rights violations. As we record today's episode, the United Nations Human Rights Council is meeting and we're going to hear again reports on violations in Syria, a report on Myanmar. And those two places, as we know, atrocities have been well documented. And so we're bound again to hear those calls at the council for full transparent investigations, no impunity for perpetrators. But how exactly is that going to happen? We've seen tribunals for former Yugoslavia, for example, we've got the International Criminal Court, but now there's also another route called universal jurisdiction. Sounds dry, but it's really, really interesting. And that's what we're going to discuss today. To join me, I have Philip Grant, who's executive director of Trial International. That's an organization dedicated to fighting impunity. Perpetrators are at risk of being brought to justice a long time after they've been in power. Gerald Stavarok, who's secretary general of the World Organization Against Torture. They're very complex cases. Politically, they're complex cases in terms of the evidence gathering. And my colleague, Swiss Info journalist Julia Crawford, who's been reporting on universal jurisdiction jurisdiction cases and become something of an expert. The recent upsurge of Liberia cases in third countries under universal jurisdiction has fueled a push for a war crimes court in Liberia. I'm going to start with you, Philip. Basic nuts and bolts question, what is universal jurisdiction? All right, in a nutshell then, uh, universal jurisdiction is a legal concept that is grounded in international law, according to which states that do not necessarily have any link with certain particularly egregious crimes might nonetheless exercise their criminal jurisdiction over these crimes. What does that mean? When it comes to genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, torture, enforced disappearances, states can investigate in some instances, have to investigate and eventually bring to justice suspected perpetrators, even though the crimes were committed abroad, not on their own territory, and were committed by citizens of another country, not their own, against victims from another country, so not their own citizens. Turning to you, Gerald, when we look at, say, let's look at, for example, Syria, war been going on since 2011, well-documented 
crimes, war crimes, is what the UN Commission of Inquiry says. How important is universal jurisdiction then as, a, as an avenue to justice for victims and families? I think generally we cannot underestimate the value of justice for victims of gross human rights violations. And we see ever and ever again how important justice is for the rehabilitation and the recognition of victims. Today, getting justice for victims of Syrian war crimes. We will look at how European prosecutors in Germany and other countries are building cases against suspected perpetrators. In the case you explain, Syria, there's an enormous frustration because this has never been transferred to the International Criminal Court, etc., through the Security Council or else. And universal jurisdiction is, in a way, the only way at the moment to address this. And I think uh, decisions like by the Koblenz Court in Germany, with all its limitations, are fundamentally important for victims to say, at least somewhere, sometime, someone is responsible. And I think that victims want to see justice to be done domestically. You mentioned the Human Rights Council. We would like, or the victims today in Belarus, would like to see justice done in their country. But if this is not possible, universal jurisdiction is like the rescue boat in a way that is there. And I think this recognition that at least somewhere, even if it's not your case or your perpetrator, has been brought to justice is just tremendously important. We're going to come on to that trial in Germany related to Syria in a little bit. Um, but more recently, Julia, there's been a case of universal jurisdiction right here in Switzerland, not of a Swiss person, not of a crime committed in Switzerland. Nevertheless, there was a conviction. Tell us a bit about that because you covered it. Absolutely. A historic verdict was handed down very recently on June the 18th. Ali Kuzai has been found guilty of war crimes in a Swiss court. Ungewohnter Strafprozess. Das Bundesstrafgericht in Benizona spricht erstmals ein Urteil gegen einen Kriegsverbrecher. A former Liberian rebel commander, Ali Kusia, was sentenced to 20 years in jail for war crimes, including murders, cruel treatment of civilians, recruiting a child soldier and rape. It's historic for Liberia because there have been no prosecutions or convictions in Liberia for the horrendous atrocities that were committed during the first and second civil wars in Liberia. And it's also historic for Switzerland because it's the first universal jurisdiction trial and the first trial for war crimes in a civilian court ever in Switzerland. Is this a sign of things to come, do you think? Because Liberia, as you said, Julia, no, no prosecutions there. If we take, for example, Sri Lanka, they were supposed to have this truth and reconciliation and justice, which has been condemned by the UN, is totally ineffectual and, in fact, a kind of smokescreen for doing nothing. So is universal jurisdiction really filling a gap? Could Liberia, for example, not have ended up at the International Criminal Court? Maybe I'll ask you first, Philip. Well, the, the International Criminal Court, like other criminal courts, has a limited jurisdiction. It cannot handle cases um, on countries that have not ratified its statute. 
and uh, it has existed since uh, 2002. It cannot investigate or adjudicate on cases prior to that either. So there's a lot of limitations. And the ICC, it must be understood, is a court of last resort. It only steps in if national jurisdictions are not doing their work because they're unable or unwilling to do so. So you will never have a case at the, the ICC. And you mentioned Sri Lanka, but there's so many other examples. It is indeed because of the impunity gap the fact that justice at home or before an international court is not possible, that you see emerging an alliance of local human rights groups and international NGOs to bring these cases to forums where it is possible to advance a little piece of, of the justice puzzle. Perhaps I can come in there. You mentioned Sri Lanka, but I think, you know, in both the cases of Liberia and Sri Lanka, we have the same problem that you have people still in power now who are prime suspects in some of those atrocities. In Liberia, there was a truth commission, and in its report published in 2009, one of its recommendations was to set up a war crimes court. But that has never happened, precisely because it's very politically sensitive, and you have people like Prince Johnson, notorious war criminal, who sits in the Senate. He's just got a top defence post in the Senate. So, Gerald, what Julia was saying there is also really interesting, that one of the reasons you don't get national prosecutions is the people who committed the atrocities are still in power. This is the direction we're going in in Syria and Myanmar. The chamber finds... Ratko Mladic, guilty of the following counts. Count two, genocide. Count three, persecution, a crime against humanity. <clears throat> Mr. Mladic, if you... We adjourn, we adjourn, Mr. Mladic will be removed from the courtroom. When I think back to former Yugoslavia, I can remember 20 years ago interviewing an 18-year-old girl here who said, I'm going to study law. She was a refugee in Switzerland. I'm going to study law because I want to bring the people who raised my village to the ground, including the mosque, killed some of the male relatives in my family. I want to bring them to justice. And yet she probably had to wait till early middle age to see any justice there. I think this is always a problem for justice. I mean, we say sometimes delayed justice is no justice. Um, but at the same time, we also have to recognize that uh, when we deal with universal jurisdiction cases, they are, like, like Phil said, they, they come into play when the domestic system fails. And usually it's not incapable, it's unwilling. And they're very complex cases. Politically, they're complex cases in terms of the evidence gathering. And certainly, I think there were challenges that we faced, um, for example, at the Yugoslavia tribunals, as you, you speak about that context, uh, about procedures that became so complicated and so burdensome that they became endless. And I think this is a real challenge of international justice we've seen. I think we've seen this less in the universal jurisdiction cases, but Philip might correct me on this one. I think once a court is on the way, I think one has to feel that it's on the way. And if it takes eight years for a process to be concluded, there is a problem of credibility. There's a problem for the victims. There's a problem of the history setting function that these courts have. I am Hatija Mehmedovic. I come from Srebrenica. I am a woman who lives alone in Srebrenica. I am a woman who once had a husband. I am a mother who gave birth to two sons. I am a woman and a mother who lives alone now. 
I have no one. I go to bed and I wake up in the morning alone. I mean, I'm thinking also, for example, the mothers of Srebrenica. I mean, some of these poor women died before any... And, any... and, some, of, and some of the perpetrators died in the proceedings. Yeah, I'll just step in on the time issue. Um, Gerald is completely right when he says, with, with time passing, you can lose you can lose justice because perpetrators die, because victims get old and pass away as well, because the evidence becomes more difficult to, to reach. There's only one maybe upside to it is that these crimes are not are not subjected to statutes of limitation. So the passing of time doesn't shield perpetrators. They can still be brought to court 10, 15, 20 or 30 years after. It doesn't bring an viable solution to, to, to the victims, but still, uh, I think perpetrators are at risk of being brought to justice a long time after they've been in power. Gerald, how does an organization like yours support victims through this incredibly long process? Um, for us, I think one of the important things in all these crisis situations, I'm just taking an example of Belarus at the moment, where probably at the moment there's very little prospect to see on jurisdiction effectively used in their country. In fact, we work on those cases domestically and they're systematically frustrated. Uh, the victims are intimidated, there are reprisals on lawyers, everything. Um, so the road to justice is a long-term project in some way and includes the prospect of universal jurisdiction. But what we have to do as a first thing as an organization uh, that supports human rights offenders and as a network organization is making sure that people who document these cases, who work with torture victims or other violations, can continue doing so despite the adversity that they face. Right now on the streets of Belarus, thousands of demonstrators marching through the capital city of Minsk today. Over the last week, officials say nearly 7,000 people have been arrested. And just today... The Belarusian state would like to eradicate the possibility today for any human rights work to be done. So I think there is a responsibility for us to make sure that the many cases that have been documented are safely stored, but also that the new violations are recorded. So, and we have to support human rights defenders on that. So I think that the element of supporting local actors and then linking them up with international action is one of the avenues. If we look specifically then at evidence gathering, and as you say, Gerald, pay tribute to human rights defenders on the ground, it's also open to countries pursuing a universal jurisdiction case to send investigators. And Julia, I think you told me, I believe, that Switzerland did not send investigators to Liberia, but Finland, who is pursuing a similar case, did, and that in, in your view, this, this proved quite successful? The situation with Switzerland, I mean, everybody's hailed this verdict, the fact that there was a trial, there was a conviction, and the Liberian former rebel commander will be jailed in Switzerland for 20 years, and then he'll be deported for at least 15 years. But this has taken a really long time. And I know, Philip, that trial has been very critical of the Swiss Attorney General's office for the slowness, perhaps some might say inefficiency of the way it processes cases or the way it has done so far. Ideally, if you can go to the ground, it's easier to get witnesses, it's easier to get evidence. The Swiss did not do that. They say it's because there was no agreement with the Liberian government. But there's a case, there's a Liberia case in France. The French investigators have been to Liberia. There's an ongoing case in Finland uh, related to the Liberian civil war. And the Finnish court 
not only went there, but actually held some hearings in Liberia and in neighboring Sierra Leone, because the guy who's on trial is actually Sierra Leonean. The civil wars of those two countries, Liberia and Sierra Leone, were very interlinked. So, Philip, is it your experience then that some countries, I mean, maybe Switzerland, they're dragging their feet a bit? I mean, we know that their prosecutors are not scouring Switzerland for possible war criminals. We know that they're waiting for non-governmental organizations to bring evidence. That's that's pretty much how it works. But Switzerland has a conviction now. They maybe didn't send their investigators, but they have they have got their conviction. Do you view countries in Europe as slow or is it just a an avenue of, of legal redress that's slowly gaining ground? It is gaining ground slowly. Amnesty International uh, issued a report some years back stating that about 160, even more than that, countries had some form or another of universal jurisdiction in their books. Out of these 160 plus countries, you only have maybe two dozens who have really exercised their jurisdiction over crimes committed abroad. And out of these 25 countries, you see clearly those who are setting up specialized war crimes units, who are giving a strategic direction to these prosecutions. Those countries are showing the best results. Countries such as Germany, France, the Netherlands, Sweden, maybe Switzerland to some extent, but they're a bit slow. But in all of these countries, what you also see is that those cases often need to be triggered the information about the presence of a suspected perpetrator on the territory of that country. And most of the time, it is NGOs who are bringing that information uh, forward. Without um, prosecutorial slash NGO partnerships, I don't think these cases would be going anywhere. What do you think, Gerald? I mean, do you, do you see it as something that countries need to actually seize more proactively to pursue justice? Or... Are they are they viewing it as okay? We have this mechanism. We'll wait and see if anybody sends us some evidence and take a look at it. Well, I think they're very different countries. I mean, uh, when Philip mentions 160 countries or so that theoretically could use this, uh, we know that the, the large majority of those countries have no appetite for justice generally for these violations. Not to speak even about justice in another country. Um, so realistically, there's a much smaller set. And I think one of the strategic directions has to be that we get countries outside of Europe and in certain places also starting to use universal jurisdiction. Of course, we have some of this in Latin America, for example. You had uh, cases in, in, in Africa, but I, I think we need much more diversity in some way. But for making it effective, I, I do believe indeed that setting up a strategic um, unit uh, is needed because I think it's very difficult to expect. Take Koblenz as a city in Germany. It's a middle town in, in the middle of Germany. I mean, a prosecutor sitting there probably has never heard about these type of cases before. So it's an enormous challenge as well. So uh, credit for them to do it. Ayad Al-Kharib was found guilty today of facilitating torture in the gulag of Syria's prisons. The German prison, where he will spend the next four and a half years, will undoubtedly be more comfortable than the one where his victims languished. In Germany, in Switzerland, and countries like this, we can expect that the prosecutors are on our side proactively prosecuting this. But I want to add one element is because obviously we look at the successful conclusions of the trials. Sometimes it can be also that it fails, but still has an impact. Take the Pinochet case. I mean, in some way it failed, but I mean, it changed all over Latin America globally. 
the concept of universal jurisdiction. So sometimes the benefit of this can be also without going the full Monty to the trial. I was quite interested, Gerald, what you said there, the local court in, in Koblenz in Germany that did reach a, a conviction for originally somebody who claimed to be a refugee from Syria but was then convicted of of torture, actually, in some of the security prisons he'd, he'd worked for the, for the regime. Do we need training for lawyers and prosecutors in Europe, for example, so that they can take this legal responsibility more seriously? Some of them have set up war crimes units within their prosecutor's offices. I think Switzerland has one, although I've heard it's very understaffed. My understanding is that the Swiss Attorney General's office, it does have a war crimes unit, but the war crimes unit was actually merged with the anti-terrorism unit. And, you know, like there may be some linkages, so there may be some advantages, but the anti-terrorism cases tend to take precedence. And it's extremely understaffed Whereas you have France and Germany that have actually put a lot of resources into their war crimes units. Um, and France and Germany have even set up joint investigation teams on some of the Syria cases. It is with a sense of duty that I take part on the 16th European Union Day against crime, against impunity for genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes on behalf of the presidency of the Council of the European Union. That's a great point. I mean, cooperation is, is of the essence and cooperation can be within one country's own bureaucracy. Just having the immigration services talk to the prosecutorial services, trying to find perpetrators, but also linking up with, with victims and witnesses and offering you know, support and, and, and making sure that their voice can be, can be heard, uh, that they are being uh, supported and, and eventually protected themselves or their families uh, back in the, in the country. But also cooperation between countries. That is highly important. You sometimes have perpetrators present in one country and the victims or the witnesses are in the third country, and you need international cooperation to deal with these cases. Did you go along with that, Gerald? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think it's because you mentioned the United Nations, the Human Rights Council, etc. I think there's also this quite interesting development, despite the failure of the Security Council to transfer the situation of Syria to the International Criminal Court, you have this so-called AAA process that was decided by the General Assembly, which essentially is a mechanism to preserve the evidence and to deal with the evidence so that it can be made available for universal jurisdiction. I think it's it's a fascinating concept and idea. This could be one model to make the universal jurisdiction option work better in the future. The UN says the scale and viciousness of the abuses by both sides of the conflict almost defies belief. They've produced massive evidence. The facts point to the commission of very serious crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity. This is the, the independent mechanism, evidence-gathering body, for specifically for Syria, which is not working theoretically hand-in-glove with the Commission of Inquiry, but basically it is an assurance to victims that evidence is being preserved for potential prosecution. You know what, we're almost at half an hour, but I do have one thing I really want to ask because I think a lot of people are, are curious about this. We're talking about gathering evidence, preserving evidence. A few years ago, somebody from the UN Human Rights Office said to me, it might take a long time, but people can't actually get away 
with these kinds of atrocities anymore because we know, we can see there's so much modern technology, satellite imagery, mobile phone footage that makes gathering and keeping evidence and finding perpetrators easier. Is that true? Is that too optimistic? The Syrian conflict is by far the most documented conflict in in the history of the the world. And that evidence is beginning to be used and and utilized in in trials. It's, It's not science fiction. It is something that prosecutors and judges refer to and use in their in their own cases. But it is also something that activists resort to. You see people scouring social media to try to find the traces of people who at home are posing with a severed head on, on Twitter or, or Facebook and then come to Italy, to Germany or to Sweden to claim asylum. And you have people who are following these guys using social media and then denouncing them to the authorities. So yes, it is, it is something that uh, is being made uh, increasingly used of. I, I think so too. And, and of course, um, in situations where these crimes happen, there's the sense of I'm untouchable. I mean, I, I once saw a documentary about the Mladic and Karacic case, and basically they were on TV camera when they walked into the the into Srebrenica and etc. Because they felt they were untouchable, so they left traces themselves in many ways. So that is to our advantage. The same way as I, I heard that um, in Syria there were simply so many copies of things that you can more easily with the benefit of a bureaucracy than uh, trace things. Um, but I mean, on one side, we have the Bellingcats and others that, that actually are uh, fascinating in terms of how you can try to document and come to the truth on situations where access is very limited or not available. At the same time, the same technologies are, of course, used against the people that do these investigations. Julia, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I was just going to say that perhaps also with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's more difficult for prosecutors, investigators to go to the ground to gather evidence. So, you know, in a way, they're forced to go on the Internet and to do at least some of the work virtually. But then, you know, my question as a journalist would be, well, if you use that evidence, how do you verify it, validate it? Because it can also be falsified, manipulated. This is a really good point, verifying what we call user-generated content. Um, It is extremely difficult sometimes, and people have been caught out. What looks like an atrocity or that somebody did it, in fact, it was somebody else. This is quite tough. And of course, as you say, Julia, I mean, COVID is preventing people going, but I mean, no no investigators are getting into Syria, not since the get-go, not for 10 years, um, Myanmar neither. So they have to rely, the Commission of Inquiry for Syria has, has relied on Skype testimony and things like that all the way along the line. Philip and, and Gerald, I mean, just is this something that possibility that evidence can be manipulated? Is this something when you approach these kinds of prosecutions that concerns you? Well, that happens in, in other trials that are not international crimes trials as well. Um, and I think judges and, and, and prosecutors uh, are aware of the risk. And you rarely see a verdict that is based only on one piece of evidence that can be uh, manipulated or falsified. It's, it's always backed up by witness testimonies, by expert statements, by you know, a number of, of elements. And then the judges have to decide whether it's convincing or, 
or not. And if it's not, it's uh, it goes it goes in favor of the accused. I mean, we need to have fair trial standards all the way. That is also highly highly important and not enough, I think, uh, repeated and, and stated. But if the evidence is 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 manipulated, it should be it should be discarded, of course. Also, very often, some of this uh, type of evidence will be giving leads to prosecutor then uh, to to investigate more thoroughly, and then come the whole context of forensic evidence, of witness testimony, or whatever is there. So it's not that uh, just because you have a video clip on something, this will be decisive necessarily for a case. It might be the lead for a prosecutor then to start the investigation and to ask further. And I think that's what's happening more. But also there is in this type of evidence sometimes a very useful human rights dimension. Um, we could, for example, on Belarus, uh, through some of the phone records and other things and the geolocation prove that people who were accused to be part of the demonstration were actually not even at the demonstration. So, so I think it is uh, certainly something for the future, but it will not displace other evidence that prosecutors professionally and courts will use. Okay, well, I said at the start of this program that maybe this topic is a bit dry, but nevertheless, we've got through a good half an hour of very lively discussion. So I've got one last question for each of you. The four of us are fortunate enough never to have seen our loved ones the victims of atrocities, war crimes, human rights violations, to have fled our homes seen them burn to the ground. But yet, like that 18-year-old young woman I met all those years ago from Bosnia, there are a lot of 18-year-olds around the world like that who have witnessed that kind of thing, endured that kind of loss and suffering. So what can we say to them? Say, yes, what happened to you was wrong and you will at some point get justice. Philip, start with you. I think we need to be very prudent and not raise too many expectations. You don't enter the justice system uh, like you enter a supermarket, you pick and choose, and then you go to the counter. It doesn't work like that. So we need to be very careful. Uh, as NGOs, we have a big responsibility towards victims and survivors to be very clear on what we can offer. We never promise anything. We can offer our expertise, but we cannot promise the, the outcome. That said, uh, we've seen a lot of very, very courageous people overcoming their own fears, their own nightmares to go ahead. And it has proved for some of them, I'm not going to say every single one of them, but for a lot of them, it has proved a healing path. Julia, can we reassure victims that some countries at least are taking their responsibilities to universal jurisdiction seriously and that this might be another avenue towards justice? I think that, you know, there's hope, obviously, um, because universal jurisdiction, you know, it was an unknown concept not so long ago, and we are seeing more cases now. The recent upsurge, if that's not to put it too strongly, of Liberia cases in third countries under universal jurisdiction has fueled a push for a war crimes court in Liberia. And only yesterday, Liberian lawyers and activists marched to the parliament and presented MPs with a kind of ready-made draft law to set up a war crimes court. Um, recognition of the victim's truth the fact that they can have their day in court. For many of them, that's already really important. Gerald, 
final words to you then. And just listening to Philip and Julia, I was reminded there's a, there's a Red Cross Centre for Victims of Torture here in Bern. And one of the women who works there told me that sometimes they will sit and take the record of the person's experience because it's the only time they're, because they're not going to get justice. That, but this is a chance, even if it's just to the Red Cross, to write down a formal record of what happened to them, which struck me as very, very sad. I'm not sure. My answer on the victim's question would be, I mean, these, the, the tribunal or universal jurisdiction case comes at the very end. I think the message basically is to a victim, you're not alone. Some people stand with you. And that's where it starts. Uh, we work on torture, so very often none of these cases will see the day of a universal jurisdiction trial. But often the mere fact that one of our organizations takes up a case like this and basically says, yes, we recognize that you suffered and justice was done to you, is already part of the healing journey. We, we speak of a healing journey in a way. And, and this healing journey ideally of course, has many aspects. It's psychosocial support. It's material support to remake your life, to have a living, to reintegrate in society. And of course, the route to justice. And there, universal jurisdiction can be one of the avenues. Uh, but it's, 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 of course, for a very small number of victims. And I think this is also to keep in perspective. This is an important tool. It's something that we have to make grow. But it cannot replace the lack of justice across the world in so many countries. And I think that's quite important to see. And there might be other ways to have exactly what Julia mentioned, the stay in court. We had, um, not many people know, but I mean, one and a half years ago, the Truth Commission on Colombia and the special jurisdiction for, for grave crimes held a hearing with victims who are based in Europe here in Geneva. And I've spoken to some of these victims. The fact that they could tell their story after all these years, they said, I thought this would have never happened. We have to understand if we support victims, it's a journey we give them. And all we can really say, we stand with you and you are not alone. Well, on that note, that brings us to the end again of this episode of Inside Geneva. Very lively discussion. I hope you all enjoyed the programme. For now, my thanks to Philip Grant, Gerald Stabarock, and my colleague, Julia Crawford. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site, 
and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.